Hey, what's up, podcast? Drew back again with another episode of Unscripted. Today, we're sitting back down with my friend Heather Wilson. She's a motorsports media and marketing specialist. After many years of working with the American Motorcyclist Association, she is now offering exclusive services directly to clients in the motorsports industry. Uh, her and I sit down and talk about some of the challenges with um, developing basically all of her new ventures. Um, we talk about some stories and advice from what it was like being a motorcycle safety instructor over the past few years. We talk about some development with the possibility of some off-road training courses, um, a little back and forth about navigation training. Isn't it possible to put that stuff together? What goes into uh, hosting motorcycle events and rallies? Uh, lots of changes or some subtle changes that have been going on in her garage and everything in between. So wherever you're listening, turn it up and uh, grab your beverage of choice and hope you enjoy the show. All right, we've got Heather Wilson on the line. What is going on? Hey, how's it going? It's uh, it's winter and I'm I'm coping. That's really the best way to describe it it kind of just started though like all at once because last week um my family was still out riding street bikes it was 71 degrees not even a week ago so i was yeah i was riding to work um i took the i took the yamaha to work several days i took the scrambler to work several days but yeah it was just overnight it was just 30s and i'm Mm -hmm. i'm not happy about it no yeah not remotely (laughs) You've had some life changes since you were on the show last. Yeah, it has been a while. I couldn't even tell you what year it was that I was on the show. <laughs> like, thinking about it now, is it like two, three, four years ago? I don't uh, even know. I believe it would have been spring 2020-ish. I was still kind of working from home and some other stuff at that point. So I was filling up the day because um, I gained an hour not commuting at that point. So I, I started oh, this yeah. thing. Um, so I love doing it. But, I mean, you've... I wouldn't say you've changed careers, but you've changed <laughs> employers and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm watching from afar, hopeful that things are going, but tell everybody about what you're doing now. Yeah. So I left my last corporate job, which was working for the AMA probably about a year and a half ago now, started my own motorsports communications and marketing business. And, uh, I was nervous. I wasn't really sure how it was going to go, but I kind of felt like I was called to do it. Um, Come from an entrepreneurial family. My dad owns a motorcycle dealership. He's done that since he graduated high school. So the dealership actually celebrates 45 years of business this year, which is really, really cool. Um, But yeah, kind of that entrepreneurial spirit, wanted to try something and I'm always full of ideas. And so kind of went out on my own, started this business and it took off with a bang. Like I did not expect it. Um, people were calling me up. They'd heard, you know, I put out a press release announcing it and it's kind of just been go time from there. So that's been really awesome. And I'm really blessed that, you know, people in the industry saw it and have, have been working with me. So. Well, kind of catch people up. I mean, what was your primary title at the at the AMA for folks that don't remember? Yeah, when I left there, I was the director of member activities. So I was overseeing any type of recreational riding and volunteer program, whether it's street bike riding, dual sport adventure, off-road, trail riding, um, managing volunteers, kind of all different aspects. Anything not racing, I like to say, which is kind of ironic now because I deal with a lot more racing That's... clients. 
Um, I guess that's kind of where like my, my passion is. Um, but I still work with a lot of, you know, event organizers and writers as well. So communications and marketing can be so broad, but probably the bulk of what I do is write race reports or race recaps, however you want to categorize it. But basically a race happens over the weekend and I'm going to give the play-by-play of it, breaking it down for the team or the rider or maybe even the series at times. So most of my work, I would say, does happen on the weekends, but there's plenty of work to keep me busy during the week as well. Some event planning for organizers and email newsletters and content like that. So, I mean, like, so what kind of, give me some examples of some of the people that are reaching out to you. I describe in better detail, like some of the products that you're offering these people. Obviously I'm a big consumer of motorcycle media and mm-hmm. race while racing is new to me, consuming that media is even newer. So educate me. Yeah. And I guess to take a step back. So, you know, I was overseeing recreational riding and volunteers, but really my degree is in journalism. And when I started working for the AMA, I was writing for the magazine and writing press releases and kind of transferred over to more of an operational strategic side of things. And so now I kind of get to tie that all back together. But um, writing is really what I love to do. And, you know, giving that information and helping people connect with different information. Um, my clients are kind of all over the board. Um, I've worked with, you know, private race teams and racers all the way up to manufacturer level teams, um, event organizers, trying to think of all the different client aspects now. (laughs) Yeah. Without dying. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of all different types of the industry, but you know, they all kind of tie together. And I think that's really helpful too, to have that view from each perspective. And then you can kind of help, you know, draw the lines from one to another, helping riders get sponsorship by creating racer resumes and sponsorship decks. Like on the other hand, like really putting yourself in the sponsor's shoes. So you know, as a rider, what to ask for, because you know, if you were in their shoes, like this is what you would want. It- that's an interesting thing. I'm kind of curious. Um, obviously, filling out an engineering resume, in my opinion, is dramatically different than a you know marketing racer type resume. So, uh, to pivot a little bit, kind of tell me like how is that different? What kind of things are people trying to promote? Like mm-hmm. what if you're willing to share some information on? You yeah, know, because I mean, I'm the sure way it, I look- it helps you for them to feed yeah. you what to write down. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it too, is there's the racers who are really fast and like win everything. Right. So they're always up on the podium. They're getting seen, they're getting the media coverage. Um, you know, sponsors want them utilizing their product because it's going to be seen in photos and, and that type of nature. There's also somebody that isn't the fastest rider, isn't the most winningest rider, but is a really good promoter and ambassador for your product as well. So I think that sometimes people think like, well, I'm not the fastest rider. I'm not winning the championships that like they're not going to get the sponsorship. I think there's two different things that companies are looking for. So if you are a really great promoter, you're really great at talking to people and pumping up their product, then you have a really great shot of getting sponsored as well. So just being able to showcase once again, like what can you do for the sponsor? Like what value can you bring to them? And people are getting like more and more creative every day. So I feel like it gets to be a little more challenging because we have so many different more like forms of media these days. 
Um, but people are just coming up with like really goofy video content and reels and all this stuff, which is great. So however you can kind of stand out or, you know, get in front of an audience beyond podcasts. I mean, that didn't (laughs) used to be a thing either. So like racers can, you know, pump up their sponsors on podcasts. I mean, there's so many different ways that they can, you know, help plug their sponsor so they retain them for the future and just really like the piece that I play for my clients as well is keeping the sponsors updated. So it's not a, you go to them like at the beginning of the year or usually at the end of the year for the next season and you get the sponsorship and then you don't talk to them until the (laughs) next time that you need sponsorship. It's really an ongoing relationship that you're building. And so my piece is like writing these race reports is a great way to communicate with them and update them after every round, like how you're doing And then they can also republish those race reports that I write on their um, social media or website, and they didn't have to write that content. So that's something that you can really provide as a writer if you're paying a communications consultant to write your race reports. So I'm sure there's lots of people in the adventure crowd that are probably listening that may not be familiar. Tell me what a race report is or give me a, a rough example. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Uh, basically it's like a news report. I, I write press releases. So that's a very specific format that the story goes into that goes out to media or posted online, but you're doing the play by play breakdown of the, of the racing. So were they, you know, did they pull the whole shot? Did they lead for the entire race? Were they first and then they crashed and fell to fifth place and then they had to work their way back up to third? Like, what were the conditions like? Like you're really painting a picture for people that weren't there to experience the race and like understand how this racer did. And of course, like my job, the PR spin is to make them look as positive as possible, even if they have a really crappy day. And I will say the hardest press releases to write are the ones where they (laughs) have a bad day. Um, And the racer is usually pissed off and like gives you a crappy quote because they're unhappy with their day. And I've got to try to spin it into a positive, uh, the days that they're winning, it's super easy to pull all that information together and send it out. So yeah, it definitely changes the difficulty based on how they do. It's really funny to me as you're describing all this as this year, our, uh, our, our side gigs or whatever you want to call it overlap a little bit more since I was working with the KFCR race team and you're talking about that stuff. And it's, I guess that's my advice for anyone listening that is trying to pick that up and get sponsors and whatnot. I'm like, you, you got to be prepared with your pitch. Like you've got to mm-hmm. remember that if anybody's asking you questions, if anybody's interviewing you about anything, like you, you gotta be enthusiastic and, and, and throw some meat across the transom for them. Yeah. And not only like being prepared with your pitch, but like doing the research ahead of time. So it takes a tremendous amount of research to, like figure out how you're going to pitch that particular sponsor. I mean, you might want research stats from your race series of like how many attendees they have and how many entries and how many fans and what are their viewership on their platforms as well. Because if you're getting featured on their platforms, that's also good for your sponsor. Um, They kind of want to know the dynamicness of, of those series. And you're kind of more on like, the videography photography side yeah. of things. And, and that's where I like, I work with photographers and I provide <laughs> the words cause I am not 
I'm trying to get more and more into video content. I actually recorded like 40 videos uh, last week and I've been like piecing them together and I'm trying to dig into YouTube, but oh man, that stuff takes so long, especially yeah, when you're not very experienced with it. <laughs> it, it it's really ironic to me um, and I'm going to get on my soapbox for a hot minute, not to complain, but just to let people know what the conditions are. I love to write, but I feel like reading is not something that the mass majority of people are interested in anymore. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like making a face and pausing at Drew right now because I feel like there are two different types of people. Like, I yeah. feel like, I feel like it's not as slanted one way as you think it is. Like, okay. of course, video content is becoming more popular, but I think it's kind of a trend in a way. Mm. And I think that there are still a lot of people that you either like to read or you like to listen, mm. you know, to audio only, or you like to watch. I actually prefer to read words. And I think yeah. that's because I'm a writer, right? So I actually love to read subtitles and captions on videos um, and not everybody does that because sometimes I'm like sitting on the couch and next to my fiance and yeah. he's watching TV and I don't have my headphones in and I'm just watching the video, but I'm reading the words and not having it be loud. Whereas some people might be driving their car, not wanting to watch right. something, but just wanting to listen to something. So I think there are different, just people have different preferences on how they want to consume That's the content. I've desperately tried to do like market research and figure out where everybody's at. But to your point, like stories was like perfect. Like the people wanting to get on Snapchat or Instagram or whatever that, you know, the 15 seconds and you can on to the next one, I can make memes and jokes and I can rip this all day. Reels has created a new level of complexity that it, to me, it's actually starting to rival what it takes to do YouTube because I feel like the attention spans shorter you got to put mm -hmm. more clips into less time. It's more, not necessarily more editing, but it's harder. Uh, yeah. Whereas YouTube, you can kind of draw something out for a couple minutes if you need to or whatever. But yeah, the video content editing, um, it's a it's a skill and it's, oh, it's highly, highly time consuming. Well, and I feel like the key is to try to edit as little as possible. Like the, the more that you yeah. can cleanly record stuff and yeah. the less editing you have to do, the better but i mean that's not always the case and then you want to add these fancy effects or you want to add music or you want to add this intro or whatever i mean i tried to create a reel last night and i think it was probably 20 30 minutes later <laughs> you know the audio is looping yeah. so it keeps repeating if you don't like turn your phone audio off and my fiance is like are you still working on that i'm like yeah it's not a quick process it's a it's a 15 second clip but it just took me 20 minutes to do it, so. you nailed it. I mean, it's the same thing. If I'm doing YouTube videos and whatnot and, and even pictures, like once you start understanding the lighting and all that other stuff, it's easier to get the crowd or the shot or whatever it is set up. It is, it is the work where you look at the results and like, well, that's not good. And you have to have people ride over and over and over again until you get mm -hmm. there. So I agree. That's totally it. I just, the irony to me being is that to me, writing is faster and reading is faster. I can get through the content quicker doing that in both directions, receiving and creating. Whereas video to me yeah. is a lot of creation. And then to me, it drags out a little bit, but people just consume so much of it now that I'm like, man, it's, it's a yeah. weird landscape that we're trying to navigate right now. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. And there are so many different platforms. And so, yeah, I have to 
kind of put parameters around my services for clients and like I'm going to post on two platforms and I'm going to, you really have to put numbers around it because it can get wildly out of control. Yeah. It, I mean, so like at this point, is it, we're talking like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like what kind of different platforms are you actively providing services yeah. on? Uh, well, usually I stay away from social media posting type services and mine lean more towards press releases and like longer piece articles. Um, I write articles for various magazine outlets as well, I guess. I forgot to mention that, but. Um, I mean, if this is you, where can people read this? Make sure you mention that. Yeah. So um, I've been writing content for Power Sports Business Magazine and ATV Rider Magazine um, and some other ones as well, just kind of as needed. And I think this winter I'll probably end up writing for them more because the racing's kind of slowing down. But uh, yeah, just kind of, <laughs> I love to write. And I think the type of writing I like to do too is that feature style. So like interviewing somebody that really like personal interview and it doesn't always have to be serious. So um, some people might know Adam McGill, pro GNCC ATV writer. Um, I was his now wife's college roommate um, at ODU yeah. at Ohio University. And so we've known each other a long, long time, probably 10 years now. And he's great, right? So he's like a huge ambassador for the sport, really great at promoting a sponsor. So I did a couple um, interviews with him. I actually did one interview and he gave me so much content to work with. I said, I think this can be two articles. Wow. <laughs> so I kind of split it up, but he shows a lot of personality and, you know, is great about representing his sponsors. So I was able to kind of showcase that in an article and he could give advice to racers as well. So that was a really cool piece that I worked on this year. So if you're doing interviews for people, what's your advice to the interviewee to provide the highest quality content? Do your research for sure. So <laughs> I have to like, I have to sit down and um, look at their race results. And I mean, if I don't know the person very well, of course I knew Adam for a long time, but like you just kind of bring out their personality and ask the right questions and, and let them do the talking. So really like you're, role is just kind of the guide the conversation but then let it flow like shut up and let them talk and yeah it usually works out pretty well yeah i guess it's a it's a gift on both ends then someone who uh had, has creative interesting things to say combined with someone who knows to ask the right questions <laughs> yeah it's challenging when you get somebody who's shy or like doesn't want to talk a lot and you have to like kind of keep drawing it out of them but for the most part i feel like I mean, racers kind of get trained after a while and in doing interviews and it's a skill to acquire. Definitely. Yeah. I've, I've struggled, um, because I like, it's weird how I love consuming so much motorcycle content. And I think the engineer brain comes out a lot because I get into the, mostly the, you know, kinesthetic machines, how, how, you know, the techniques and writing and stuff like that. So I'm curious, um, what the average consumer really wants to hear when they're reading these interviews from people. Oh, I think that depends too. Like so much of right. it is just preference. And so like, while you love all the tech side of right. it, that is something that I have a lot to learn. Like sometimes <laughs> people just think, you know, because my dad owns a dealership and I'm 
I ride myself that I know every piece and part of a dirt bike and they'll start talking to me and I'm just kind of like, I have no <laughs> idea what they're talking about at this point, you know? So, um, that's something I would actually love to learn more about, but in my what free time, I don't know. Um, so yeah, you like the tech aspect. I like more of the, the people aspect of like, what do they like to do in their free time? Or, you know, what are their tips on this? So I think it just depends on the reader. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is weird um, for me. Yeah, once I mean, you get to know, you know, you start following somebody for a long time. Yeah, you, for me, you start wanting to peel back the layers. So maybe that's what other people like as well. Yeah, and I think like each publication kind of has their own like niche too. So like some are very tech focused and you know, when you're going to that publication, like that's what you're going to get. And some are more fluff and fun. And I think that it's just finding what you like. Is, um, you were talking about ATV magazine and, uh, what was power sports? What was the other magazine? Power sports business. So I'm curious what's in the business magazine. I assume a ATV magazine is kind of like any other dirt bike type magazine. Yeah, I mean, just ATV Focus, they do a lot of machine um, tech feature type stuff. And then I'm the one that kind of comes in. I'm like, hey, I did this interview with somebody. And they always like that content, though. So that's been good. Um, but Power Sports Business is more geared towards uh, Power Sports motorcycle dealers. Um, so I've been interviewing dealers and kind of finding out, you know, what they've learned in the industry, how long they've been in it getting their journey, their best tips and practices or, you know, things that they've learned over the years. So that's been really cool, really cool. And it's always interesting, like, just I can learn so much about somebody's personality from an interview. And for those dealers, like, I don't know them before I'm calling them. I'm doing the research ahead of time on their website or I kind of have a list of standard questions. But you can pretty quickly tell like who you would want to work for and who you wouldn't want to work for based on their responses uh, of just like how they manage people or processes in their dealership. So it's, it's pretty interesting, but I've met some really cool people doing that. It, yeah. I'm really curious about um, the different stuff that would be in the magazine. Cause I've slowly over the years, just rubbing elbows with people starting to peel back the layers of what happens behind the scenes at dealerships. And obviously you have a front row seat at the, you know, for that. I assume if you asked your parents all the questions, right. I don't know how much yeah. time you spent working in a dealership yourself. But dealerships are so different. So, you know, you've got my dad who's owned it for 45 years. It's him and my mom that primarily, you know, run the business day in and day out. Um, he isn't big on technology so he's running kind of an older school program in some ways. And then they rely on me to help with the marketing stuff. Um, but that's not a full-time thing. Like I, I don't have all the time to dedicate to that. And then you have these dealerships that maybe they have three stores and 60 employees. Uh, it's kind of a whole different yeah. ball game. I, so I had Shaheen on the show. Um, he's the general manager at uh, Moto Corsa out in Portland. Now he was not when he was on the show at the time, if I recall. Um, but just the motorcycle industry in a whole, and it's not necessarily something that you're into, but I just, I can't help but to be fascinated with that because the industry is essentially selling boats and skis and, you know, fun stuff, but it mm-hmm. operates like a car dealership, which is like, as a guy who just bought a used car, <laughs> the worst experience that you go through ever. And it's like, why do we combine the greatest moment of your life buying a new motorcycle 
with the most awful experience of dealing with a dealership that feels like you're buying a car. It's weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah, every dealer is kind of going to handle things a different way. And, you know, some of them might even do monthly rides or meetups or it really just depends on their, I guess, the, the manpower and the money behind it. Well, hopefully, um, yeah, some folks will come up with some uh, new ideas and give you a call as we're going on here. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about um, magazine articles, ride reviews and whatnot. What else are you into? Well, I teach motorcycle safety classes. I guess I'm a, a woman of many different <laughs> jobs within my job, I guess. Um, I like a little variety, but I teach motorcycle safety classes for the state of Ohio. So people come to me and other instructors to learn how to ride street bikes and to get their endorsement. I also train all the instructors in the state in the curriculum that are teaching the students. So that's kind of like another layer to it, but that's really fun um, when the weather's nice, but the weather's <laughs> hardly ever nice when you're doing it. It's either hundred degrees or 30 degrees or raining. So I always joke that there are very few um, ideal days, yeah. ideal weather days for a teaching class, but we teach in all different types of conditions. I have, gosh, I've been doing that like seven years now. So That's... I have gotten smarter on my scheduling. Um, so I don't teach as early in the year. Like I'm not booking March classes. I used to, yeah, absolutely. Um, now I'm waiting a little bit later to like late April or May. And then I don't teach as late. So it, I would be really curious uh, on that particular topic. I wonder what the pass rate is based on weather you're talking about stats i wonder is Ooh. there a loose correlation between people that actually show up on the crappy weather weekends and pass versus the people that show up who kind of were and i you know what wanted to ride a motorcycle but are like nah i don't want to ride one and they they quit because the weather's nice so they didn't quit on the front end yeah so i don't we, we track lots of different statistics to analyze the program and how it's doing Weather is not one of those. However, just from personal experience, usually if it's a very crappy weather day, people will not show up. And yeah. it's 50 bucks to take the class. And so we've kind of found out that 50 bucks is like the new 20 bucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like people are like pretty okay with throwing it away or they think that they can reschedule. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But um the, I think the hardest part, though, is like when you've had a nice weekend of weather and everything's like going smooth and then it comes time for the evaluation, yeah. which is where we have to see if they pass and it starts pouring down rain and they haven't practiced riding in the rain the whole time. They've been doing these exercises and braking and, and swerving and all this stuff on dry pavement and now it's pouring down rain and they're nervous and freaking out. That's usually when it's more challenging. Do, um, do, you, do you have like a video that kind of shows what things these people would learn before they go to the training? No, I don't think we have a video. We have, would you like to lend your video services? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I, yeah. But. We have been talking about video content forever, but because it's a state run operation, you know, you have to go to this specific department, you got to get this booked and all these permissions. And so we haven't, we really don't have any video content. Um, 
other than just the BMB manual that shows what the evaluation is going to be at the end of class. And we do all these exercises to kind of build upon it. I, so. I'm, I guess I'm spoiled. Um, I remember, and I think you and I have talked about this before. When I was a kid, my dad was teaching somebody else how to ride a motorcycle. So I kind of got a chance to see what really went into that test. Cause he set some cones up or drew some stuff on the parking lot or whatever it was and helped this person do that. Um, so I knew on the front end kind of what to expect when I did that, but I'm really curious. I would assume that lots of people show up and are like, I want to ride a motorcycle. This is my second time ever on a bike. I've got my endorsement, blah, 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 blah. I have no, I no doubt that's, it happens. Oh, we see all different kinds of people. There are people that have never even sat on a motorcycle before that like come and take the class and by the end of class they're riding, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty rewarding in that fact to like, know they didn't know how to operate a clutch or a throttle or anything like that. And now they're riding. Um, not everybody passes, obviously not yeah. everybody gets to stay the whole class. You, there is a level of safety that has to be maintained. Um, and you definitely know like which students to keep your eyes on <laughs> to pay attention to. Um, so our it's like a six to one ratio. We have two instructors and 12 students for most classes if everybody shows up. So it can be a lot to manage. It's I was curious about that. Like what I love to teach, but I typically get to pick my students. So it's not that big a <laughs> deal, right? Like it's, you know, it's a, nie a niece or a, a sister-in-law or a family friend or whatever. Like, you yeah. know, it's great. One-on-one, -on -one, no big deal. I love it. But to be in a position where one, you're getting paid and two, you don't get to pick the students. What is the hardest part about teaching people how to ride a motorcycle? Oh my gosh, you have to have so much patience, like so much patience. And so I mentioned that I train instructors. That is the biggest thing we've really tried to like impress upon people that say they want to be instructors like going forward is like, you are going to have to deal with so many different types of people, just so many different types of people and personalities. Some are going to be good at, at riding motorcycles. Some of them aren't. You have to have so much patience. And you have to follow the curriculum. This isn't a, um, this isn't the Heather show and I'm <laughs> telling them like everything that I know and how I think it should be done. I'm following a pres prescribed curriculum and some people have a really hard time staying to the curriculum, like sticking on tasks. So when we're recruiting new instructors, like those are the couple of things that we try to get across very firmly as well as we teach in all kinds of weather. So yeah, just, you don't get to pick your students. I've met <laughs> so many amazing people, had a lot of great students. Um, some of them, you know, I even become friends with later, but some of them I'm happy to, to let go or, <laughs> you know, they show up to class and they're just mad because they couldn't find their way there and somehow it's my fault. But it's, it's been interesting since the pandemic, uh, just how people's personalities and the level of respect has changed well, in teaching classes too. Well, that's, um, you led into that, but that was actually the first question I was going to ask is if you've known this for seven years, then you know what the pre-pandemic world looked like for motorcycle mm -hmm. training and post. How did COVID change who's getting a motorcycle? How many people like talk about how that, that landscape has changed? And then please elaborate on the personality differences. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing is, well, we, we had to stop training when the pandemic happened. Right. So like a lot of businesses, things shut down. We couldn't have training. We were doing classroom instruction. 
we couldn't be in classrooms. We were trying to figure out how we could still have people on motorcycles outside. So we started teaching online virtual classrooms via Zoom, and then they would still come to the range and ride. So that was one adaptation that we made and actually worked out pretty well. That's good. Um, And we still do a variation of that at some different locations and stuff. Um, The no-show rate is just astronomical in the last couple years of people just not not calling and not showing up. So you might have a full roster and seven people show up almost. Well, um, you said 12, don't show up. 12 is full? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you might have 12 on the schedule and only seven show up. <laughs> and they've effectively taken those seats from somebody else that maybe really wanted to take the class and now, you know, can't take the class. So that's been something that's drastically changed with the pandemic. And then just like the level of respect too so people get pretty feisty I've been yelled at screamed at cursed at and I just by adults like grown adults for (laughs) for doing nothing too like I'm a very patient person I'm not I'm not yelling at them I'm not doing any you know it's just it's a very interesting landscape that we're in do you have a remotely generic example I just you know Riding a motorcycle is one of the greatest things I've ever done. And I crash and yeah. still laugh about it off road. So I'm trying to figure out like, yeah, what's so know. rough? I just, I don't know. Sometimes it's just like sense of entitlement and everything should be built around them. They show up to, cl- oh, showing up late. Yeah. That has been a crazy thing lately. So I always say, if you're not on time, you're late, right? Or if you're not early, you're late. So get there 15 to 10 minutes early, right? That just seems like common knowledge. No, we're lucky if half the class is there by five or 10 after. (laughs) And that just, oh, that kind of stresses me out because I am very much like a person that wants to start on time. But if we started on time, we wouldn't even have enough to start the class. It's, that's wild. And obviously it's, it's not motorcycle related. I've started talking to more people who are involved in teaching and, and that kind of stuff and talking about, kids and attention spans and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, I, Mm. I I don't think it's exclusive to that. Um, I was on my soapbox about reels the other day, but we'll save that for a different show. But COVID, it changed people. Like it it really, (laughs) it really really changed expectations that it's like, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but we established it that you can just kind of phone it in at work at some jobs and some employers. Mm. Like it's weird. I, Fast food, yeah. fast food industry was propped up by what was going on, but the service and the food is worse than ever. Like, what is going on? Yeah, it has definitely changed the landscape. And then you were talking about, like, how, like, who's riding motorcycles yeah. and stuff. So somebody else in the industry had told me that this happened, I think, in, like, 2008. Okay. I don't know if it was the economy or gas. I can't really remember back then. But when gas starts getting more expensive, people want to ride motorcycles. And so they're not necessarily the people that are motorcyclists that have a desire to ride a motorcycle because they think it's cool and they want to do it. It's people that like financially want to save money and they think this is a strategy that they can do it. So that gets to be a little bit hairier of a a client that isn't really doesn't really understand motorcycles doesn't come from a background in motorcycles doesn't understand a clutch or like any of the 
mechanical aspect of it, but they just want to like ride it to save money commuting to work. So it's, yeah, it really is a different customer. That's, that's really funny. Um, you, I don't know if you read it, but I wrote an article not that long ago, the 13 motorcyclists that you will meet. Did you see it? No. That, and I'm not upset. It happens, right? Uh, there's lots going on <laughs> out there. But the utilitarian is one of them. And it's, it is very much that this is not a social person. This is not a person that goes out and joy rides. This is like the commuter. Like this is like the person that, you know, is, is riding to work and is strictly business. And this is all about saving money and pinching pennies. And to some degree, I'm that guy. I'm, I'm all, <laughs> I'm all the characters, let's be honest. But, but yeah, like, that's really interesting. I'm, I wish I could uh, see, you know, be a fly on the wall to meet these people who are like, they never wanted a motorcycle before, but now the gas is five bucks a gallon. But that's kind of the cool thing about motorcycling too. And I feel like some people fight, fight this, but like motorcycling can be whatever it wants mm -hmm. to be to that person. There doesn't have to be a standard. They don't have to be that motorcyclist through and through. Like they can just be the commuter and that's fine. Yeah. People used to give me a lot of crap because I wouldn't commute to work. Well, I had a 20-minute <laughs> commute to work, and by the time I got all geared up and all geared down, and I'm a female, and I fixed my hair, and I had the right shoes that I wanted to wear when I got to work, like, it was more of a hassle than it was fun. So I didn't like commuting on my motorcycle. I love riding my motorcycle for fun, and I want to go, you know, just t tool around and tour around, but I don't want to commute on it. It just wasn't something that I enjoyed, and yeah. I think that's perfectly fine. Like you don't have to commute to prove that you're a motorcyclist or you don't have to do this to prove you're a motorcyclist. Like just let people exist and be who they want to be. It's, I think that's been my life lesson in 2022. I want to believe that it's been the underlying like perspective I've had probably since starting this podcast, especially. Uh, but people are blatantly different and nobody's wrong. Um, and that mm -hmm. was, that was that article that was like, it's, it's both. I'm poking fun at the extremes. Some people mm -hmm. are ridiculous. All of these stereotypes are true a little bit. And what would the landscape be like if we just had people that were all the same? It would be boring. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So definitely that piece. Um, you and I were talking dirt bike stuff at one point have you been involved in more development and dirt bike training because that's kind of been a push that I would like to see happen. yeah so I did get my certification through USMCA which is United States Motorcycle Coaching Association um, this year so I do have my certification through them it was my intention to develop curriculum this year and teach it but with my business kind of growing and taking off this year I just didn't really have the time to dedicate to it so starting to kind of put together plans for next year and it's definitely on the agenda to get a curriculum done and I've already got some land and people that I've talked to about using it um I think it'll be pretty well received <laughs> um so yeah just trying to plot that out but definitely something I want to do I, you know I love teaching the street bike side of things but like I really love dirt and so the thing that's going to be different, though, is teaching kids, yeah. right? So I teach, I mean, the youngest kid we can have in class is 15 and a half or 16 or whatever. Um, so it should be interesting teaching, like, a five or an eight-year-old. Like, I don't know how different <laughs> they're going to comprehend things than a, when I'm used to teaching adults. So 
uh, obviously I have never done this, uh, but I would, <laughs> I would firmly assume that, um, using the older kids to demonstrate and do drills where everyone participates at the same time probably goes a long way if I had to guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so is the state, is Ohio going to be, are they doing that on their own or are you trying to augment? Like what's the game? No, plan they don't, they don't deal with the off-road side of things. There's really no off-road motorcycle training in Ohio, aside from, you know, riders teaching clinics or things like that. So it's a pretty wide open market, but I really want to, especially like cater to those learn to ride beginner riders, because I feel like so much of the off-road coaching industry is pro riders teaching racing techniques and clinics. And that's great. But then where does that leave the people that you know, they're eight years old and their parent just bought them a bike, but the parent doesn't ride and doesn't know anything about it. Like how, how can we teach them without immediately jumping into motocross or, you know, whatever discipline it might be. It's, I'm not telling you anything you don't know already, but, uh, you know, at KXCR, we've got quite a few of, um, the wives and moms are starting to get involved and ride, um, which is awesome. Um, and I, I think like, I mean, my niece and some other people are good examples of that. Like the, inter- the motorcycles are interesting, but the street is, I, don't, I hate to use the word intimidating, but it's like they, they, they see a higher danger to riding on the streets, but they're interested in riding off road. So I think the opportunity here is, is huge. And I think you nailed it. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, it's like all the clinics or, you know, training with the pros and that's, mm. a, that's a lot from go. Well, and teaching even, I mean, people can find so much information online and, you know, a hundred people can teach the same thing and people are going to find different sources and that's cool. But like so much of what I want to create resource wise and curriculum wise, like things like how to tie down your bike. I mean, I showed up to a ride one time where this woman had a, a hitch carrying rack on her SUV and had the bike tied in the most wonky way it damaged her SUV like it was it was not cool and like I really felt for her because nobody had taught her how to do this like she didn't have anybody in her life that was a motorcyclist that could show her how to do this she went and bought a bike and bought a hitch rack and you know she made it there the bike made it there but like I showed her how to properly tie it down and that's stuff that you know maybe I took for granted before because growing up in a motorcycle family i know how to tie a bike down um which is simple things that we can pass along i i'm gonna make this statement um and it's really overarching i work in manufacturing i work in engineering and i don't know what happened but i honestly feel like there's something that happened in like the 70s or the 80s where the landscape of where people live and work and all other stuff that the experiences that, yeah, your parents or whatever may happen, like didn't get passed on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Like It was like the kids moved to the city. And so they didn't learn how to, like I said, tie down bikes or yeah, absolutely. C- cook cornbread or canned peaches or wh- whatever you <laughs> want to claim it is. And, yeah. And that stuff sounds silly, but I'm like, no, there's like real functional life skills, like changing a flat tire, like the number of people who have no clue how to do that now. It, it, it blows mm-hmm. my mind. But I think it's yep. more normal than abnormal at this point. Yeah. Well, and I would be one of those people. I would call my dad, <laughs> call my fiance, or call roadside assistance, right? That's yeah. terrible, but that is the reality. Um, 
So, yeah, but I, to your point, totally there are skills that are not getting passed along and lifestyle changes. I watch a lot of history shows. I, I love history. I'm not great at reciting it, but basically, you know, I watched something a while ago that was just exactly to your point, like the industries that people are working and living in are completely different than they were. Like as things evolved over time, things got left behind. Um, so yeah, some, some just basic stuff is not so basic or common sense anymore. No, it's, it's wild. I, yeah. Tying down bikes is, I mean, it sounds silly, but I, I've seen it um, to some degree. I'm guilty of it in a different way, but that's a different story. Um, and going back to go teaching classes again, the difference between when I teach in an urban environment versus a rural environment, the students are completely different. So respect is usually a little bit different between the two. I, you can draw your own conclusions about which way that goes. Um, the rural uh, community, they've driven tractors and trucks and all that kind of stuff. They understand the clutch yeah. and like the mechanics of it. So they catch on pretty quickly. Um, sometimes the urban environment, they have no concept of, of what the clutch is. So that gets to be a challenge. So many other challenges coming in the industry and training as well as we evolve into electric motorcycles and how that's going to look for training. I mean, the bikes that we're still teaching are carbureted bikes for the most part. Very <laughs> yeah. few are fuel injected. So that's like a whole other thing. Even if somebody does have a motorcycle, they have the latest technology. They come to class and they're like, why isn't it working? Go like, turn your fuel valve on, you know? So yeah, it's so many things. It's obviously, I, I love to delve into that specifically. Um, technically, my my newest motorcycle to me is also the oldest one I've ever owned. It's an 06 and it's carbureted. Um, and I prefer carbureted, which is also weird. So, but, <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Is you only know what's current and it's like, mm -hmm. sometimes old stuff is good. It's just different. You have to understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've heard um, some of the latest motorcycles, too, in the in the dirt bike world are being produced without um, kickers, kickstarts, yep. whatever. And um, while that's great in some ways, it's also not in other ways <laughs> when your bike isn't working and you can't kickstart it. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I I, that's a, another, another debate that I really, I need to find, you know, like who the right person to debate with that is, is, uh, <laughs> the, the motocross versus woods racing and then motocross's giant effect on the off-road community and how it's actually a small segment that most dirt bike owners don't participate in, but, <laughs> but it completely drives what's for sale. Oh, we're just going to take the kicker off. Cause you don't need that anyway. Like, no, I'm a long way from the truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny stuff. Uh, so as far as off-road training is concerned, do you have a clue on like what market pricing is going to be for people to get training and that kind of stuff? I'd love to tease that if you have a clue what, what's reasonable. Oh gosh. I'm sure you haven't um, picked it for yourself yet, but I don't know what it costs. Well, I kind of have, I kind of have numbers in my head. I don't know if I'm ready to share those publicly, but it's like a couple hundred dollars for okay. a couple hours of training. It's not going to be $50. Like the street bike stuff is obviously stipend and backed by state funding and other sources Sure. where being a private entity, it's going to cost more in training. So 
And I kind of envision having a couple students again, like keeping yep. small ratios, but still having a couple students to like make it worth your while and, and run the exercises. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about it elsewhere. Um, we've had Andy on the show. Andy Janik does, um, large adventure bike training off-road. I want to say it was in the neighborhood of $300 for five, six hours of instruction, but it's two instructors for, I think six students. So it's, it's like very mm. direct and there's perks to that. Right. So it, it, it sounds like you've got a similar vision um, and that's exciting. Yeah. So I, I hope uh, I can put out a link to that later next year or whatever it is when you're ready to do that. Yeah. I'm excited to get people involved. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Just got to find the time to write out all that curriculum. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of have the concepts floating around in my head and stuff, but to actually like go out and plot it out and, you know, measuring stuff out trying it out this is um i guess totally like me thinking out loud which is extremely dangerous on the podcast um <laughs> you and i've talked a lot and i've done some more discussion after it about doing navigation training i don't know what your experience has been thus far i feel like similar to off-road training, sh- adventure people are kind of keyed into this and they want it but nobody seems to offer it <laughs> yeah i Oh gosh, I struggle with a, like a Garmin GPS or anything of the sort. Like usually when I'm going riding, it's adventuring back roads of Ohio. It's kind of a point and shoot thing. Um, I don't really have a defined route because I just really struggle with loading the maps and stuff. And I get so frustrated every time I dig it out <laughs> that I'm just like, screw it. I'm not doing it. So well, yeah, I mean, I've even sat in on some workshops, but like nothing's really sticking. And so... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need some. This is you and I talking, and hopefully the crowd will get something <laughs> something beneficial from this. So as a guy who obviously lives, eats, and breathes this stuff, first, what are they teaching in the workshops, and why don't you think it's sticking? And on top of that, like, what what is the, the big trouble you're experiencing personally? Well, again... So we talk about adult learning principles and learning styles. People learn in different ways. Some people learn by watching. Some people learn by doing. I like need to see it done and then I need to do it right then. Not watch a whole PowerPoint about it. (laughs) Never touch it and then like forget about it. And then two weeks later, I go back and try to figure it out. Like it just doesn't work. And I really like um, like step-by-step pictures too of like, items circle, click here, do this. Sometimes that gets challenging with technology because platforms change controls and buttons and stuff like that. But yeah, the more broken down into bite-sized pieces and the more that I can do it, and I guess like at my own pace, like I I do really well with somebody teaching me one-on-one too. So yeah, maybe if you and I sat down and we physically walked through it and you didn't even do it, but you told me how to do it and you watched me do it, like that would be helpful. It, you nailed it. I, I think that's been the biggest challenge. I'm Obviously, you know, Uncle Sam taught me how to use a compass and a map and do everything completely old school. And I love that stuff. Um, <laughs> so it's not surprising I'm where I'm at with technology, right? But you're right. This person's got a Garmin. That person's got a TomTom. And this one loads with this software. And that one loads with that Mm. software. And then the smartphone does this. And I've got like three navigation apps on my phone. And they're all different. And I actually email the GPX to one of them. And I have to upload it with the other one. (laughs) Like it's just, 
that, yeah, it, the variety really makes it brutal. Um, I just, I've been tinkering with the idea of doing, um, like multiple blocks, like doing the hardcore, like you want to go out and get lost in the woods and know how to use a compass and like generally un, un get lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, cause the GPS fails, the, the phone battery dies, the, the, the yep. charger wire melts that's in your tank bag, like all that <laughs> stuff happens. So like, yeah, if the, if the sun is up, you had better figure out how to get home. <laughs> I start reciting like north, south, east, west, <laughs> the sun rises, like that's, it starts spinning around. Like, yeah. Yeah. It, that's what I'm saying is that that stuff's like relevant. Um, and I've wanted to be able to offer like, like the crash course, like this is the basics, like one, how to remotely orient yourself, at least head in the right direction and hope you hit a freeway or something and you can figure it out from there. Right. Or find a gas station. Um, and then get into, you know, Garmin versus, you know, online apps, Rever, whatever else it is. And then like, I general map reading, like, tell me from your perspective, like what's the map reading understanding that you've run into at all the rallies and races you've been in? Cause you've been involved with people that do, um, mm. what do they call those? Not road books and stuff. Yes. But most of the like rallies that I attended and it's been a couple years, even since I've been to one, like I was kind of the person following along. I wasn't the person leading. And so I also kind of got off the hook because <laughs> I didn't have to like know where I was or, yeah. where I was going type of thing. Um, I like paper maps. Like I like keeping those nearby because cell service can yep. be spotty in places for sure. Um, I guess where you live is also relative. Like it's Pataskala, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you're I mean, not, you're not in Columbus. You're just far enough out that it's like rural Ohio. <laughs> Yes. I mean, the city is kind of encroaching yeah. out here. So I, I get to move further out in a couple of years. But like, it does change your perspective on things. So like, if you've grown up in an urban environment, and you have cell phone service, absolutely every second of the day and everywhere you go, you just think that's normal. But then from my background and going to Enduros with my family, and pinning for my dad when he was racing, like most races were so remote that you didn't have cell phone service. Um, so I knew like Southern Ohio, you don't have cell phone service, but there are a lot of people I think that don't have any concept of that whatsoever. It's the wife learned very quickly. Like if I tell (laughs) you I have a three hour drive, you better call it two and a half hours because you're not going to (laughs) hear from me until I get back on the highway. (laughs) Well, and in so much of this, like, it kind of started to hit on like survivalist skills too. Like if you're lost in the woods and need to find your way out. And I have like no shame in saying like, I don't desire to be (laughs) the survivalist adventure biker. Um, It scares the shit out of me to be honest, to be like lost in the little woods somewhere. Maybe I should brush up on those skills and I wouldn't be so scared. But like, I, I love glamping. Like yeah. glamorous camping, right? So I love coming back to our toy hauler where we have bathroom, running water, we've got heat. Like I love to go ride, view all the beautiful scenery, be as far away from people and things as possible. But I like to come back to my camper. I have no desire to sleep on the ground in a tent <laughs> or 
It's just not me. <laughs> no, it's. So. It, I do think that you're in the uh, you're in the eighty percentile. You know, donut. I'm not going to sure. be cooking on those little. <laughs> I mean, I look at all these little gadgets that they've got at all the camping stores or whatnot, and I'm like, oh, gosh, who would want to do that? So. Uh, this guy that is yeah. that is definitely my jam <laughs> and, uh, yeah i've uh spent some covid time doing some camping shopping like hmm how much more stuff can i fit on the back of a dual sport that's smaller yeah um so go ahead doug doug my fiance he was asking whose podcast i was going to be on he's like joe rogan i'm like yeah probably not <laughs> probably not um but i was like hey you remember that campground that we went where that we went to in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, where you got like really, really nervous. And like, he never gets nervous. Like he was kind of freaked out by the scenery. And like, yeah, that one, like Drew recommended that one to us. So. <laughs> the place is amazing. And I found and, and what's more it called trails. Now? La- Lago Linda Hideaway. Lago Linda. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I found more trails this year um, for the rally that are on their property. So I'm hoping to have a, an adventure bike beginner loop for people that, you know, like kind of flirting with the idea of going mm-hmm. off road that way they don't get too far away and can literally shout for help and we can hear them on the other side of the lake, you know, like, like but I think we're going to, but yeah, that, that it's, it's the right level and, and people love that place now. And I don't know how much you've caught that, but there are some of the gnarliest trails I've ever seen, like right out of that place. So people just get the most amazing scenery and stuff right out of the gates. So. Well, and I think when we're talking about events and event organizers and things like that, like the best thing that event organizers can do is really communicate as much info as they can about the ride. And difficulty and skill is something that people will always disagree on. It's really hard to rate. There is no like, I don't know, skiing has like black diamonds. I don't even know, bunny hills. Yep. There's just, it's just impossible to rate motorcycle riding across the country and different bikes and different skills. But like the more that you can show in video or like pictures and like from people's experience, like the better off you are that way, nobody leaves pissed off. Like everybody's having a good time because the worst is like going to an event thinking it's going to be one thing and then it's something else and you just don't have a good time. So we had, we had 175 plus this year at the rally, I think. And, How did uh, you fit all those people in that campground? I can, campers? Oh, I had room for more, sister. <laughs> no joke. Um, yes, the RV people are cranky because we're sold out on on hookups. The cabin people are cranky because we're sold out on cabins. But if you want to primitive <laughs> camp, I have space, space for you forever. <laughs> There's no maximum capacity amount. We could bank that place as full as marshmallow madness um but but i i read the the feedback this year and and it is interesting because it is every year i'm working to perfect to try to let people know what to expect but we had so many first timers this year that it was obvious That's awesome. well it isn't it isn't right like like i'm excited and mm-hmm. i love it but the reality was is that i had so many veterans that are kind of like i know what to do i've seen it i've done it i'm not showing up to the writer briefing drew i don't care <laughs> that i'm dealing with a lot of beginners that are like i have no idea what to expect and there's like no veterans to get them to shake hands with and meet, yeah. make groups and go do the thing and i'm like okay so next year we're gonna have to do like sandwich boards with like pictures and maps and like you said like i'm gonna i've already started it like creating like the diamond type trail marking (laughs) mapping like i'm like we're gonna have to break it down barney style because yeah the beginner groups are just so big now that it's like Mm. what do you do 
So I didn't get a lot of hate mail, but but there were definitely some comments that people did not know what they were getting into. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about feedback though from an organizer perspective because this is something that I help clients with too is like post event surveys. And most of them that I work with have never done surveys before yeah. and it's like a mandatory thing for me if I'm helping to like promote your event that we're going to get feedback afterwards. And I always have to preface it with like you're not going to like you're not always going to like all the feedback. Some of it's going to be valid. Some of it you can just throw out the window because it just isn't even worth considering. But like even the hard stuff to like read or hear sometimes is valuable. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you you need to hear it or you just didn't think of it. There's so many great ideas that people can give you in that feedback. Yep to like make things better. And like, isn't that your whole goal is to make it better. So more people want to come back to your event. Yep. So, I mean, in my case, it's a free event. This is how I like to spend my summer vacation. So the reality is, yes, I could be a jerk and do exactly what I did last year or do nothing. Mm -hmm. And I'm out nothing, but you're, you're absolutely it. That is like, Hmm. Yeah. We're going to pump up the maps next year. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I, I guess I'm I'm very happy that the most common comment was Drew. I love it. It's been this way for years, and that's what makes it special. That made me. That is what yeah. makes me want to stay with it and evolve in the right ways because people are happy. Well, and always keeping in mind too that usually the negative comments they're the ones who are like so willing to tell you it versus like all of the hundreds of people that had a great time but don't send you a personal note to say they had a great time. So I have some organizers that always get frustrated when, you know, three people are just being complete jerks and very, you know, outrageous and cursing them up and down. But like, okay, there's 300 people here and three of them were being jerks. I still think you're, you're doing a pretty good job, you know? At least two of those weren't going to be happy anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely Go ahead. Yeah, when you're doing your surveys too, like keeping in mind like the years of experience and, you know, how many times they've been to your event, like all those factors. Oh, gosh. Data is like fascinating and frustrating at the same time. There's so much to evaluate and just so many pieces of the puzzle. I mean, that's it, right? You infinite palette of personalities which also leads to infinite palette of events that you could go to so people have these expectations and go to this different event and it's like well that didn't meet my expectations well we didn't know what they were we're sitting here like debating all this and i can see like our wheels are like turning in our minds we're always like analyzing or thinking about how we can do this or that and i'm i'm wondering like we're probably not normal, to be honest. Like, there are probably people that just have no problem, like, going to an event, showing up, doing their thing. They don't even think about all this stuff. But, like, these are the backgrounds that we're from. So, like, anytime I go to an event, whether it's motorsports or not, I'm analyzing and figuring out, well, they could have done that better. Or, oh, that's a really great idea. Or I should take that, you know. Like, I'm always thinking of it in terms of, like, if I was going to do this, like, what would I do? But I feel like that's not really normal. I feel like some people just go to an event and have fun. It's a weird thing. Um, And I I guess it's particularly weird for me because my wife gets crazy because I'm like, why do you have to touch everything? And and, and why is nothing's ever good enough for you? And and I'm laughing. So I'm like, yeah, you're married to an engineer, like my entire (laughs) life and blood is flowing to make things better. 
but she turned me into this event coordinator, right? You know, she works for a charity and that's kind of their thing, right? You put on events. And so she gave me a couple of those things and I'm like, okay, now an entertainer, that's me, <laughs> has all these skills about how to put events on. You're like, oh, great. Now an engineer is an entertainer and an event host. This is a nightmare. <laughs> nightmare. Yeah. Uh, so what else, what else are you into? You've been, uh, I think, I feel like there's some more topics in here, some more layers to unpeel about, uh, new life changes. Hmm. I don't even know. Um, well, I mean, at a minimum, I feel like there's been some, has there been some bike changes since I talked to you the last time? I thought you yeah, shuffled the, yeah. the stable a little bit. A little bit. I've still got my tried and true, um, 2016 KTM free ride 250. My dirt bike. Do, do me a My favor. Baby. Before you change that, tell people about that bike because I don't think everyone understands what a free ride is. In my opinion, it's special. Um, well, I'm never getting rid of it. Everybody <laughs> always asks me, like, if I'm going to get a new bike. And that's, like, the other thing. Like, some people just always have to have the latest, greatest. I'm, like, completely cool with not having a payment and riding, riding the thing. FOMO it bro. It fits me really well. Yeah, FOMO yeah, bro so- is one of the 13 people. <laughs> that's a real thing i'm not joking they gotta have a new bike every two years so 252 stroke um lots of torque will literally tractor you up any hill like with zero effort um 65 chassis basically is what it's or not 65 85 chassis really um is what it's built on and yeah, uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's like slightly smaller than a full-size yeah, bike it's smaller yeah. for sure um and then I've lowered it too. So I'm five, six and I can kind of tippy toe on it because that's about as best as you can yeah. do with a lot of off-road bikes. Um, but yeah, I love it. Super lightweight. So when I drop it, it's easy to pick up, but the yeah, thing, it's just a really It had trials, trials tires on it when they released it. It did. Right? Yeah. When you, yeah. when you buy them, I don't think I, tires are another thing. I just kind of put off on my dad and. <laughs> Doug, so that's that's what I was gonna say. You want to start talking specs here? I'm gonna that's, defer. That's what I was like. Okay, I'm gonna jump in here because this is my side of the party that I like so much. You um, could probably tell me more about it. That, so go the, ahead. The free done your the free ride. Yeah, good one. I see what you did there. The free ride and the Beta X trainer are these weird like enduro slash trials hybrid bikes. And because of where I ride in Dayton at Dayton Dirt Riders, and it's full of trials riders, and the terrain either sucks or is gnarly, depending on what you're into, I've really debated about getting one. So I've had my eye on the free ride um, and the X-Trainer when they come up in different places. My concern has just been, am I going to be upset if I try to race it after the fact? Um, but yeah, every one of them yeah. I've, ridden, I've had a good time on. The, uh, and they're, they're not importing the free rides. They haven't, so mine's like a 2016, so they still make them over in Europe, but they don't import them over here. So you're going to have to buy used, which I have a pretty good, I guess, network of, it's like a cult a little bit. Once you ride a free ride that people tell you about (laughs) them and you find them and you can get other people on them. And recently I just had a, a woman that I've met through an online group come over and test out my free ride to see if that's something that she wants um, going forward. But yeah, I just really love that bike and I won't get rid of it. So as long as it's still chugging along, which it seems to be. Two strokes are great because they're just 
easy to work on. I was just talking to a friend of mine about potentially selling my 350. And if I get rid of it fast enough that I would might buy his two stroke, assuming his doesn't get sold soon enough. So we'll and see. then kind of on the, the street or adventure side of things, I had a 690 Duke street bike. I sold that actually the day that I left the AMA, which was like super ironic. <laughs> Like very, it was like sold and the guy, somebody I know, um, came and bought it or whatever. Um, and then I kind of was without a bike for a little while and I was just borrowing my grandpa rides. He's 80. He's a total badass <laughs> on a motorcycle with his besties, which is kind of like another funny story. So him and, um, his best friend who I call my adopted grandpa, they, you know, go on rides during the week and have their little groups. I'm on their text group. So I get the invite now. And if I'm not super busy at work or I don't have any meetings and I take all, all opportunities to attend, but I was kind of borrowing bikes from them for a while. And then I, uh, found a 690 Enduro mm-hmm. that a family friend and customer my dad's had purchased a while ago. And the price was more than fair. And so I snatched that up and I love that bike. Like I, really do love that bike and I think it's because it feels more like a dirt bike yeah. so, I was gonna ask you take me back like what what led you to decide to sell a bike especially to sell a bike and not replace it immediately because I'm usually that that's usually me I'm selling it because I know what I want yeah well we talked about like not wanting the latest and the greatest I just didn't want to like spend a lot of money on something and so I just kind of like waited and this popped up and I was like, yeah, I think I want, well, I was debating too, like what I wanted. Cause I, I wanted to get more into adventure riding. Cause I really had like pure street and pure dirt. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew I wanted to do more adventure stuff. And, uh, I looked at the, you know, big adventure bikes yeah. and I thought for a while I wanted to go that direction. And then I just couldn't fathom spending that amount of money. And then also like, they're so big and top heavy (laughs) and like, I just, I just wanted something I could throw around kind of. And so I landed on this 690 Enduro and I, I really do love it. It's kind of the best of both worlds. And the cool part is like, I, when I got back on my free ride, I was like, Holy crap, this thing is so small. Uh Like riding the bigger bike made me a better rider of my dirt bike. And, you know, people cross train all the time. And I guess I just really hadn't put it together. But, like, training on that bigger bike, training, I guess, riding. It, it's um, real. Yeah. It made me feel like my dirt bike was even smaller than it was. It's, I, I love going between the dirt bike, the big bike, the dual sport, the dirt bike, the big bike, the dual sport. As I, <laughs> as I go to each one, because yeah. you know, the weights change, the handling changes, the power changes, like all that stuff changes. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it is really bizarre how things get easier and harder and everything gets easier. And it's really weird how it happens. And it almost starts happening to you before you realize it. The issue mm-hmm. I run into is when I get back on the street, I don't know if I'm supposed to lean or, or put the <laughs> bike under me. I'm just so confused. That's the biggest <laughs> issue. Yeah. So, so you fell out of love with the Duke or like what happened? Yeah. I, you know, I like riding on the street, but I like more like dirt gravel back roads than I enjoy riding on the street. Like the street is kind of my way of getting there, but yeah, I wanted something a little more dual purpose, I guess. So you, I mean, to me, 
I probably couldn't own a well, maybe I could own a six ninety Duke. My buddy put me on his eight ninety Duke the other day, and I'm like, I need to give the keys back to this. I'm going to die or go to jail. There's this is not going to end well. Um, so I don't know if it would, the six ninety would be as bad, but I mean that thing's a beast. So mm-hmm. like, is is canyon carving still your shtick? But you just want to do it on a dirt bike instead, or what? No, I don't think. I just I like looking at rural, pretty scenery. Like I'm not really into the ride fast, go hard. Sure. Twisty, curvy. I just I like taking in the scenery. Yeah, you you are the scenic writer. There's a, <laughs> there's a, a label for that, and there's nothing wrong with it. I wanna I wanna stop, pull over, and take pictures. Yes. Because yeah. Yeah. That's so. That that is where I run afoul because I typically <laughs> want to break all traffic laws. Oh shit! There's a picture. Stop. Pull over. What are you doing? Hey, this beautiful. Shut up. Oh, the other thing that's been interesting is um, for my entire life I've never used intercom systems until this year. Um, I was kind of like against it for a while, and I was just like, I just want to, you know, pay attention and listen to the writing, like not have any music or anything. Which I don't listen to music, but um, Doug and I got Cardo headsets and we talked to each other like during the ride. And it's funny because when we go dirt biking, we only have them in our uh, adventure helmets. So when we go dirt biking, we don't talk to each other, but it's like kind of quiet and lonely after you have them and you're used to them on the road. And it's just so nice to say like, Hey, I'm going to pull over up here. I'm going to take this left. I'm going to take this right. Instead of like, you know, watching the person ahead of you, or maybe they, miss that turn i don't know it's just it's this, been interesting i, I love this because it it's not very often i get to talk to a convert um obviously i'm a army radio operator so sorry <laughs> and a podcast host so lord knows i love the sound of my own voice as a person who has recently converted from not wanting one to want one tell people who are listening who don't want a headset like describe what really changed your mind and the emotional experience that it, that it was to go from one to the other. You touched on it. Yeah. It, I mean, it, I was, I was kind of against it for a long time. I felt like I didn't need it. And I don't even know why I let him talk me into it, to be honest, but <laughs> that's a good question. We did. I really don't know how it came up. He, when he wanted it to listen to music, that's, and he mm-hmm. listens to music the whole time, which I don't, but, um, no, I just feel like it was it was kind of a cool bonding experience to like get to hang out and I mean some people ride motorcycles to get away from people, but like I enjoy riding them with the people that I enjoy, right? So um to talk to him while we were riding or like we're always dreaming of new houses and stuff. So ooh, do you see that house? Yeah. Or, ooh, you know. I'd love to have that house and so you're just kinda of getting to share the experience together. So he's got the, you guys got a newer unit. So he's listening to music even when you're talking. Is that what you said? Um, It like tones down the music uh-huh. when somebody starts talking, but I don't hear his music. He could share his music with me. Right. That is possibility. <laughs> yeah. Learning these has also been a little bit of yes. a challenge because back to like the GPS game. Right. Um, he's very not tech savvy at all. I used to think I was, but now I feel like I'm getting older and now I can't figure it out as well. So like we still struggle sometimes to like get them to link up or, you yeah. know, whatever, but um, we've got the basics down. Um, but yeah, he can be listening to music. And then when I talk, it kind of quiets his music and lets me talk and then goes back to playing his music. So if you're riding along, 
are you talking the whole time or is there like dead air? Not really the whole time. It's more like pointing things out. Uh Yeah. I'm leading the witness here because obviously I've talked to a lot of people and I'm sure my buddy Bill, who's also been on the show, will let everybody know I will talk you to death on a headset. (laughs) But that, I think that's the thing. Um, I had a friend, he followed me down to, you know, tail of the dragon. It's a 12 hour ride. When I lead a ride to go to deals gap, that is six hours on the highway is a full day. If we're going back roads, because I'm going to enjoy the pictures. Right. Um, but he would just, Editor Drew, I'm going to listen to my music. He hits the button and he's just, he can't hear me. I can't hear him. We're going along, listen to my music. We're having a good time. We're not communicating. He hits the button. He goes, hey, Drew, can we stop you as a bathroom? Nope. No problem, Chuck. We'll do that. You know, he hits it off again. So that's why I want, I want to point that out to people that are like, screw that noise. I don't want my ride interrupted. I'm like, no, you can do that. You can totally hit the button and just tell people to, to screw off. I don't want to talk to you. Like that is an option. I don't feel like we're having like random conversations like, Hey, did you remember to feed the dog this morning? Or like, we're not talking about stuff like that. It's really like things we're seeing on the ride. That's more of what the conversation is. I just, I'm, I'm a huge proponent. Um, Obviously I've had the the folks over at uh, Uclear on the show before and stuff. I just, it, it, it's expensive to buy the top end unit, but to me, the like you said, off road, like the safety that you gain with off road riding is huge. Because I mean, at the last scramble, the washouts from the creek were so bad in a couple places that it was only bike length wide on a jeep trail. Like half of it had just washed away, and you will not mm. see it. If so, if you're going on at full clip on a jeep trail, and you know how fast you can go on a dirt bike on a jeep trail, yeah. like no, you are you are about to go front wheel face first into a wall of dirt that just disappeared. Like this Mm -hmm. is not good. But with a headset, it's like, Hey dude, you need to stay right in about a hundred yards. You know, you get to warn people like that stuff matters. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Big, big proponent of that stuff. So, um, so tell me about the six ninety. Is it just, um, first few experiences or you had some trips on it yet or what's the deal? Yeah. I mean, I bought it last December. I didn't get to ride it until the spring, but we, I'm trying to think, I mean, we do a lot of riding around here just on random days. My grandpa and his friend, they do adventure riding too. So they know all the good routes and I kind of like to, once again, I don't have to lead. I don't have to follow a (laughs) GPS. I just follow them, which is nice. Um, they always have the breakfast stops, the lunch yep. stops, the ice cream stops, like, and I'm treated like a princess on the ride. So I very much appreciate that. Um, so those are new, um, like, rally organizers that you're, <laughs> that you're talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. My, and my grandpa and his friend do lay out um, adventure rides for Hocking Valley Motorcycle Club. They've been doing that for years. So they're kind of the, the spearheads of that. Um, so yeah, that's lots of fun. Um, I'm trying to think what else, where I was going with my train of thought. I'm just going to make a comment. Apparently I need to go to that because the reality is it's closer than the rally that I host. So I should probably come over there. Yeah, you should definitely go to that <laughs> for sure. But they haven't given me the dates yet. So I'll uh, have to, to figure out when that is. Well, I keep hopefully. telling people like, you got to get me the dates for stuff because my calendar is already filling up. So I hate crossing the cornfields between you and I. I mean, I loathe crossing those, 
But the reality is, is that Eastern Ohio and Southwest Ohio, or excuse me, Southeast Ohio is really gorgeous. So people really yeah. should go. So hopefully I'll get some links from you when this airs mm -hmm. or at least soon after so we can share that. So yeah. anyway, oh, getting to ride we to 690. About, yeah, getting where I got to ride it. So um, I had to go to New Hampshire for a motorcycle safety conference for my street bike teaching classes. So I talked Doug into bringing our toy hauler up with our oh, adventure okay. bikes. Um, I thought you were going to say you rode there for a second. I went, really? No. <laughs> Once again, not a commuter, just for, <laughs> just for enjoyment. Um, so yeah, he brought the toy hauler and the bikes up and we did some camping um, based off recommendations, I would say actually from adventure rider groups in different states is like how I found the campgrounds and stuff mm -hmm. too. So that was very cool. Um, so we got to do some riding and then on our way back to kind of shorten up the drive, we stopped and camped in New York, um, around the Syracuse area. Again, kind of a point and shoot type of thing. Like you do a little Googling and you're like, yep, that looks good. So that's where we ended up. And there was actually beautiful riding yeah. around there too. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, it's the, the 690 and the 701 have been on my radar for quite a while. Um, obviously used bike prices right now while falling are still really high. Um, but I actually saw a 690 for sale in New York for not a bad price recently, like probably two to three grand less than what I've been seeing other people yeah. post them. It's so you're right. Like stuff's definitely coming down. Cause I was like, Ooh, that's a pretty good price. It, I mean, they COVID drove them to ten grand. Like you weren't getting, oh, yeah. you weren't getting a six ninety under ten grand. And I was like, yeah, we're we're out of this because I remembered when they were at least eight at the most. You know, mm. roughly, and I've seen them as cheap as six. But yeah, those were gone, so I'm gonna have to wait. But I I'd like yeah. to have one. I got mine for sixty five hundred, mm -hmm. and so that's why I'm saying like when I knew it was a good price, I jumped on that, and that was really even before they went crazy. But yeah, yeah when I saw people wanting them for like nine, 10 grand for like used. And I paid 6,500. I was like, Whew, I'm so glad I got yeah. it when I did. It's demand was high. What year did you say you got again? It is a, let me think about it. I think this is 17. Okay. So some... the hard part is when you're like buying and selling the bikes over the years to remember <laughs> what years were what bikes for sure. That's there's a weird statistician that lives in the back of my head. It drives my <laughs> wife crazy. Like, you can't remember that we had this thing, whatever, but you can remember like every, you know, inches of travel on whatever Honda. And I'm like, it's, it's a weird disease. Doug can like recite <laughs> part numbers and crazy stuff like that. But like, can't remember that I told him I had this thing today or, you know, whatever. So it's, it, I get that. Yeah. It's, it's a real thing. I, well, one men are obsessed with things. Women are obsessed with people. So like it, it's women remember <laughs> people things. It, yeah, women, yeah. You just remember people things. I mean, this is of course a stereotype, but there's some reality <laughs> to it, right? But yeah, men are like they can remember, you know, a '67 mm. Chevy and whatever engine and blah blah blah. But uh, I did want to comment for the crowd. I mean, obviously the 690 competes against you know the old XR650 and the KLR and the DR650 and whatever else. But I'm like. If you really want a heavy off-road but dual sport and you really want to be able to haul ass on the pavement, dude, to get a 690, which I think you only need to do oil changes on that thing, like, every 6,000 miles. Like, I don't think it's any more frequent than that. It's definitely... I 
not more than 3,000 miles. It's better than my Yeah, WR. I think Doug just changed the oil in it for me like a couple weeks ago because it was like, hey, um, we haven't changed this since I owned it. I don't yeah. really know when he changed it or, <laughs> or like whatever. So yeah. Oh, well, and Doug actually, he said he could hear it. He's like, when you pulled up next to me, I could hear it. It needed its oil change. I'm like, hmm. okay, once again, you're talking mechanics, <laughs> speak on me. And I, I have no idea, but um yeah, apparently it needed I, it. So it, I just throw it out there because the vast majority of the 650 big bore dual sports that are out there, the designs are incredibly old. But KTM, mind you, is very premium, is offering, you know, upside down suspension, fully adjustable, blah, blah, blah. They're expensive, but I mean, it's a, it is an incredible machine for what you What get. I really like about it too is that the, the gas cap is in the back, yeah. like on the rear fender. And like the gas tank is down below. And so like, it's just very balanced. And I always have like a tank bag. So now I don't have to take the tank bag off. I can just pop open the gas cap on the back. So that's pretty cool. Simple, but cool. You follow Lyndon Poskett at all? Have you? No. So Lyndon, now this guy's something else. And I'm sure I've mentioned him on the show before, but for folks that haven't heard, Lyndon was an aerospace engineer, if I remember correctly, out of the UK. Um, hated corporate life. This was pre-COVID. Um, he just decided he wanted to ride a motorcycle around the world. So he he did some other things, but ultimately ended up building a race spec 690. So he got a Dakar KTM race ready 690 engine, built a rally bike, rode around the world and went to motorcycle rallies and competed on the way as he went around the country, whatever. But I'm saying like, yeah, he's essentially, crazy. he's not on the 690 that you buy, but essentially, yeah. you know, there's some DNA that's shared there a little bit, you know, so it's, it's a big deal. And obviously the 690 came out of Dakar, kind of, I'm saying that loosely, uh, but yeah, it's, it's on my radar as much as I give orange bikes a hard time. Well, if you ever want to test ride one, you know where to find oh, one. Dude, so. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> Neither one of us can afford this. Oh, it was definitely the case. So so just up in, would you say New York and New Hampshire then? That's been the, mm-hmm. the, the sides around the house and whatnot. Yeah, I think so. Those are kind of the, the bigger trips this year. So what's the similar and difference experiences between the 690 Duke and that? And you're like, give me the touchy feely, you know, rider description of. <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't take my Duke on any back roads, really. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just purely street. Um, I don't, the Duke seemed a little more top heavy to me, a little mm-hmm. more wider fairing and stuff. So yeah, the 690 is just really slim and easy to maneuver. I don't know. You just... don't, you don't feel like you lost anything in the change? Yeah. No. That's to me, that's the, that's the goal, right? When you, when you give up a bike to not feel the regret of the change. But kind of just different, different weapons of choice. Like I, knew that this was the kind of riding that I wanted to do. So that machine fits a lot better. Do you end up talking to students in the training courses about that kind of stuff? No, I actually try not to because (laughs) you just like, you don't want to be putting your bias on the students of like brands or types or anything really. And honestly, there's just not much time in class to have, a lot of sidebar conversations. Um, I just want, like, I want them 
to find something that fits them well, that they enjoy and like that they can be safe on. So trying a, a variety of bikes, but you know, more importantly, like finding a bike that fits them, like starting off probably with a smaller bike and like working their way up. You don't need to go buy the 1000 CC bike right off the bat. So and heck, I haven't ever had a 1000 CC bike. I don't really feel like I need one. So, um, somebody's screaming at the phone right now, but I, I mostly <laughs> agree with you. Um, is that part of the curriculum at all to talk about that? Or is it just one of those random no, conversations that it's comes up? really like we talk about, you know, the, me the mechanics of riding, like how to do it and practicing those skills and then like making good choices. So like rider choices are huge. So we always say like, you can be the best rider, but if you make really dumb choices, it really doesn't matter what your skill level is. So yeah, I mean, you have to choose the level of safety and the level of risk that you want to take, right? It's I, I've told lots of people, especially people that don't ride, motorcycles are not dangerous. They are unforgiving. <laughs> there's, there's a distinct difference. I mean, there, there's definitely like, there's a level of risk yeah. in anything in life. And it's just whether you, how you manage it and like how much you want to accept. Yeah, it's, cars have safety nets, airbags, seatbelts, mm -hmm. all that stuff. You make those mistakes in a car, you typically walk away. On a motorcycle, they are unforgiving. There is no, mm -hmm. there is no safety net. Yeah, gear would be like your first yeah. line of defense, right? But yeah, not the same as being seatbelted in to a car. Does the state program have anything that talks about safety gear besides helmets? Yeah, I mean, we we talk about we basically share about different types of gear, so different materials. I mean, it's brief, but like. You know, this one has reflective piping, or this is why you would want to wear motorcycle-specific boots, or, you know, just different textiles. But again, we just kind of leave that up to them. We're not, like, pushing certain standards upon them or saying you should go buy this jacket or don't go buy this jacket. Talk about helmets. I mean, we recommend a full-face helmet is... Like any helmet better than no helmet? Sure. But like the most protection is going to be a full face helmet. So I'm a convert. Although ironically that convert came at the same time that the headset situation came. I wanted to ride an iron butt. I wanted to listen to music. And then my wife started traveling 50%. And she called whenever she called. Otherwise I didn't hear from her. And then all of a sudden it was, <laughs> I couldn't go back to a half helmet. It's weird how that stuff takes place. Mm. I brought all that up because you and I talk about classes, training, video, reaching the community. And I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just, you know, confirmation bias or something. I, I wonder, I feel like a lot of new people struggle with the choice of the first motorcycle and they get told by friends, you know, well, don't buy a small bike. You're just going to change it. And per your comments, I'm kind of the mindset of you don't realize what you're missing out on. I did it wrong. And I'm telling you buy a small bike. Well, I just, I mean, you don't have to buy the smallest bike, but you also don't have to buy the biggest bike. And I don't really know. I don't really see anything wrong with buying and selling different bikes. Like, you graduate, right? You yeah. are at different levels at different times in your life. So nothing says that the bike that you buy today has to be the bike that you keep <laughs> for five or 10 years. Yeah. I mean, now financially it might be, like I said, I don't like to have payments on things. I 
you know, had the free, the free ride was not my first dirt bike, obviously, yeah. but this is the one that after all my years of riding that I really like and it's paid for and I don't need to go buy a new one. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been kind of my hang up is that, like you said, there's, you know, X number of personalities involved and yeah, that's the thing for a lot of people, what motorcycles are to them. They don't get why that's not what it is to you. And that's, i I see an opportunity there to do, I mean, there's lots of articles on the internet, but still. Like. Well, and like this woman that came over to ride my free ride a week or two ago, like she had a bunch of people that were willing to let her ride their bikes. Not everybody's going to be so willing. Yeah. Um, especially if you're newer and you really don't know how to ride, people probably aren't going to want to loan their bike to you, but I'm pretty, you know, nonchalant about letting people ride my bike. So she came over and she rode it. She rode some other bikes and now she's trying to figure out what she liked the best. Yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> that's ironic. Um, I probably test drove 20 cars in the past <laughs> two weeks. That's probably more cars than I've ever driven. At the dealership or of your friends? Um, they were all dealerships. Mm, okay. So I'll, I'll put it that way. But, but that's the thing, right? Like, huh? Normally you don't drive that many used cars. Mind you, the used cars market is hot garbage right now. That's the only way to describe it. So I was very particular about what I chose, but yeah, the motorcycles yeah. is tough. Cause you're right. You can't, you don't get those opportunities very often to get on that no. variety. So that's rough. So well, what's on the horizon for you, sister? Uh, just keep plugging along, I guess. Like I love what I do. I love the freedom that I have and I get to throw all my crazy ideas into projects and services and, yeah, I like what I'm doing as far as work goes and still do a lot of volunteering. And I even roped you into some of that. That's, um, that's kind of what I was leaning into. I was like, there's all, still a whole bunch of unpacked so, stuff here. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I roped Drew into volunteering with a off-road motorcycle kind of committee through the state with the ODNR and Wayne National Forest. And we're kind of just getting our feet under us again after again the pandemic kind of paused all progress on that so lots of opportunities to get involved no matter where you live no matter what state you're in or anywhere there's always opportunities to get involved and if you're not sure where get a hold of me and I will definitely search something out for you even if it's not in this area like there's so many different ways to be involved and dedicate your time but well let's Let's unpack that because I mean, we have time. So let's, I want to approach that from both ends. One, what are you trying to get accomplished locally? And then let's offer, you know, parallel paths for anybody else that's listening that's much further away. Yeah. So I think coming from a communications background, like the basic level is having the community, like having the list of people and being able to communicate to them, which we really, essentially don't have in the state like everything's kind of splintered like there's all these different clubs there's all these people that ride there's all these Facebook groups but there's no like ultimate database um and then certain organizations are limited by how they can collect data or communicate to people so kind of what I'm starting to dig into is us creating this master database and working with all these different entities so we can have a stronger voice um, as motorcyclists, especially like, you know, a lot of times people come together when privileges are being taken away, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but it's hard to assemble that like in the moment. So you really need to be like prepared ahead of time and kind of drawing parallels, uh, the mountain bike community in Ohio, like did this several years ago. And so they're kind of willing to help me, um, figure out their process and how they got this whole database and community flowing. Um, because one of these committees that I drew, I drew Drew in, (laughs) um, recruited him for was working with all trail users and all entities in Ohio. So mountain bikers, horsebacking, um, walking, waterways, any, any of these groups and like motorized is one of those. So we're working together and, you know, each one of us kind of has our passions and what we want to stand up for, but we can also collaborate in a lot of different ways too. So just really trying to bring that cohesiveness together is kind of like the very basic goal that we got to start with. I I want to make an anecdotal comment, um, especially this year, because I had to close no less than two trails at the scramble because of issues between land disputes, side-by-sides and whatnot. It's really frustrating because the side-by-side folks and the motorcycle folks want the same thing. There's just a few bad apples that are ruining it for everyone. Um, And I, I feel like, especially as a street rider, bicyclists and motorcyclists that are at odds with one another. But the reality is we have way more in common than we do in different. Mm. So I want to facilitate exactly what you're trying to accomplish because I'm like, we've got to build these bridges because the reality is, is these off-road areas are going to be closed to everyone, maybe even hikers, if we are not Mm. careful and we need to make this work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think there's... Well, and even within motorized, there's so many different segments, like you just pointed out, like side-by-sides and ATVs and motorcycles. So, I mean, we've even got groups within groups within groups. So makes it a little more challenging. But, yeah, somebody's got to step up and get involved sometimes. So I guess that's us at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, who somebody says it. I forget who it is. But is it, like, you, you have to be the change, right? Like if there's something mm-hmm. that you want, someone's not going to do what you want. You have to be the person that's going to volunteer to do it. So I'm, mm-hmm. I, I could absolutely give more effort to this. I'm sure, but I want to help in every way that I can. Yeah. And like, my goal is always like to build something that can be like passed on to like, and that's always the struggle with organizations is like people change over time and then information doesn't get passed along. So like whatever I build and collect, like I want people to be able to use it, whether I'm still involved or not. But I wanted to make this comment because you were talking about building a network. Do you know Mark Siddons over at US Dual Sports? Yes. Okay. Yep, yep. I, I want to make sure that you were connected to him. Obviously, we've talked some. Um, he's promoted the rally and uh, I've talked to him about, you know, different website options and some stuff like that. So I, I personally... Yeah. He has a great database right now. So if folks have not seen that, I'll try to remember to put a link in the description so people can check mm-hmm. that out too. That, that's a first start. What else do you want to get done besides building the database and getting the hand well, shaking? Yeah. Well, I mean, from there, it kind of is like mobilizing the boots on the ground, right? So like trail cleanup and and being the voice that maybe we can not only have like maintain trails, but like have more trails. So it's just going to be a, a long process. Well, I mean, you've, you've known the folks at 
I mean, locally, for people that don't know, Wayne National Forest is a huge uh, off-road trail network here in Ohio. You, you've known those folks and the state people for a while, right? Yeah, I mean, probably at least five plus years. I mean, so I mean, I mean, Wayne's what, 30 minutes from you? It's more like an hour. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it, the premise of what I'm getting is lots of people have ridden there. Um, but when we complain about trails or we want new stuff or whatnot, is there advice that you can offer for people how to forge these relationships with the government entities? And what are the things that people who are listening are ignorant to when it comes to why we can't just wave our magic wand and change things? Yeah, I mean, anything involved in government takes a long time and there are a lot of rules and stipulations and um, surveys and data and analysis that have to be collected. You can't just like go in there and cut a trail. Like there's so much that goes into it and like planning and it's a multi-year process. So like one is like respecting and maintaining the land that we have and like being responsible users. But like two is like developing the relationships with the land managers and like offering your help instead of just complaining and saying like, Hey, we need this thing. And you don't have any idea of like how to get it done. Like actually work with them and be involved and try to find the right resources to make it happen. I mean, a little, I'm peeling back the curtain here a little bit uh, from the little bit that I've gathered from talking with a few of those folks. It, it, like you said, they seem to claim that the um, equestrian and uh, mountain bike community seems to be like really tied together. How do we recreate that in the motorcycle community or, or how do we at least describe to them what it, what it looks like, the support that they're getting from those communities? Are you asking from like a land manager perspective or like a, like a rider perspective? Well, both right like in my mind like we need clubs to get involved to show that we're serious i mean i just just think our culture is literally different it's just not the same yeah i think one like we need to be a little bit more united in in our fronts so like yeah we have all these different clubs but can these i'm just throwing out a random number can these 10 clubs come together and it's like go towards this one goal um, and then like, just how professional and like how you approach things too, and like the right way to ask and to work with the land managers. Well, I think it's describe- personalities in the motorsports industry. Like there's a lot of, I don't want to say everybody, but like a lot of old school mentalities and like why can't we just do that well there's just like so many layers and that's why there are like other organizations out there too like novak that specialize in like trail development and working with government entities that like you can pull in these other resources to help you accomplish these goals i think you might have to describe what that looks like a little bit more when you're talking about how to you know the words you use, the attitude and approach, like you may have to describe that to people and what it means to deal with land managers. Cause lots of us probably know what it means to deal with the motocross club, not, <laughs> not a government entity that says, get off my land. Well, yeah. And like working with the land managers, like we're really lucky here in Ohio that we have, you know, when I say land managers, like government entity who are overseeing these trails that are like, 
um, I don't even want to say like pro motorized, but at least accepting of it. Um, I would say some of them are definitely pro, but at least it's accepting because in other places there are people who are very anti motorized. And so based on like your land manager, like in their background, they might be against it. They might be for it. They might know nothing about it, but like, how can you help educate them and show them like the good side of the sport, like, and show them that not everybody is being irresponsible or tearing up the trails. Like it happens for sure. I'm not denying that, but like, how can we show them the good aspects of it and help them see all the positive things that can come out of it? What's, I mean, that comment I said about um, knowledge and stuff being passed down through generations. I mean, this is the perfect example of me being that person. I do not know. I am was 30 before I got into dirt bikes. Like, hell, I wasn't 36 before I got into dirt bikes, right? Like, so all of this stuff is stuff I don't know. So to me, it is like trying to get people who've missed that relationship to start working together to try to support an entity that is hard to reach and doesn't evolve quickly. And I'm like, I'm, I don't know how to project this message, but it's got to happen. Well, it's a long process too. Like nothing's going to be immediate. Like I've been on these committees for years now and sometimes the progress is slow, but like the key is not to give up and walk away because otherwise it's just going to keep repeating itself of like no progress. So sticking with it, even if it's taking a while. Yeah. It's, it, I hate to do a bunch of the talking, but that, that's my takeaway has been like, I, I want to work with, you know, Cincinnati cafe racer and, and you know, other clubs locally and like, Hey, let's get involved in this and hope that we can get something uh, return on the other piece. Cause as you said, I'm pulling back the curtain. It, it, it seems like locally here in Ohio, people are interested and in, obviously especially the adventure bike community is what I talk about. Like they got deep pockets, y'all like we should make this easy. And I'm not, saying we all do, but I'm like, venture bikes are not cheap. So mm-hmm. people will spend money to get this opportunity. So let's keep the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Keep the tourist money flowing in if we can. Mm-hmm. So for sure. Well, what else, what are, what big projects you got for 2023? You kind of alluded to some of that stuff on the front end. Mm. Well, in the off season, I'm kind of going outside of the motorcycle industry a little bit. I'm trying to, uh, break into the snowcross <sighs> racing industry for the winter. Um, so snowmobiling, it's kind of a, a newer segment for me, but I kind of want to do that while the racing on the motorcycle side of things is slowing down. So that's something kind of new and exciting. Are you seeing timber sled people in this community at all by any chance? Like snow bike. Yes. Is that what you're thinking? Yes. Yeah. Um, I've seen... Like, yeah, when I search the hashtag on Instagram and stuff. Also, I've learned that, like, snowmobile racing is really popular in, like, Italy or some huh. countries over there. It's, like, half the hashtag is, like, not American countries or hmm. riders, which is, like, pretty interesting. It's so a weird thing happened uh, since you and I have talked the last time, um, at least via podcast, I've moved. And uh, the neighbors across the street loved it when I moved in because I also have loud motorcycles and they have a young <laughs> young kid. And they're from Michigan. And the, his mom, obviously, is in a snowmobile. So I've been suddenly 
exposed to this community. It's a new experience for me, obviously. Mm. But I'm like, okay, I can kind of follow that a little bit. Um, I don't know if they but still do it up there, but yeah. The you Michigan... might have to make that introduction. <laughs> it's, she, well, they've been trying to convince me to go to Michigan and for the longest time. And that that's the thing. People that listen that know, right? Know. It's like, I, I'm 45 minutes from the Kentucky River, like, or sorry, Ohio mm. River from Kentucky border. Like as soon as I get there, the riding is amazing. So it's hard to get me to go north because it's a three hour drive to Michigan or go east. It's an hour and a half across all the cornfields of Ohio to get to the better part of Ohio. Like it's the, the return on investment's rough. But the more I hear about Michigan, the more I'm into it because it's like, yeah, you get on one of these snowmobile roads in the middle of the summer on a dirt bike and then just end up at lodges and all kinds of other places. I'm like, yeah, this sounds like adventure bike heaven. I want to go check mm-hmm. this out. And yeah, it turns out I like sand. So that kind of works out too. <laughs> Yeah, I'm uh, plotting to go to a snowcross race up in Minneapolis in yeah. January. So that should be fun. Um, and then, like, I was in Idaho last fall um, for that motorcycle safety conference. So yeah. it goes to a different state every year. It was in Idaho. And then one of my co-instructors and I kind of traveled around. And Idaho is beautiful, by the way. I was like, going to tell you to expand on that. <laughs> stunning. I Probably one of my favorite states. Um, but we stayed at these lodges for like dirt cheap money. Cause it was kind of like the off season in October. It wasn't summer, you know, they're not really into their winter sports yet, but they all turn into like snowmobile lodges during the winter. And I was like, wow, this would be so cool to come back to in the winter. We'll see. So that's kind of a bucket list item. I mean, it's obviously what is today, November sixteenth. It snowed twice already this year, so I, I I feel a real Ohio winter coming on. I don't think I could get away with a snow bike just yet, but yeah, I've you know the three fifty I think has enough juice. To yeah, I mean, I feel on. like Ohio doesn't really get that much no. snow to like accumulate. Well, central or southern, yeah. but like I mean, if you live up on Lake Erie, maybe. Yeah, yeah. but. That wouldn't be fun riding up there. I don't think nearly as much as Southeast Ohio yeah. would be gorgeous, but uh, no, that, but the more I, I think about that winter stuff, I'm like, yeah, I think I could probably do the, the timber sled thing. We just, the weather doesn't support it. It's just a gray bucket of suck here for the most part. Also, I've been looking up like ski lodges because I haven't been skiing since I was probably in junior high and I didn't have snow gear. So like every year it was like, Oh, I don't have snow gear, whatever. And then last year I finally like bought the snow gear. It's literally sat in my room with the tags on since last year has not moved. I'm like bound and determined to use it this year. So, uh, and now I have no excuses cause it's bought and paid for. Hopefully it still fits. Right. I'm, I'm <laughs> betting that it gets used to shovel the driveway if it doesn't get used to mm. actually go skiing. Cause it's, I think it's going to be miserable this winter. Well, maybe. I, I hope mean, I'm wrong. The nice, thing, the nice thing is I don't have to commute. So <laughs> I don't have to leave my house. <laughs> that's that's solid stuff. I mean, you got business development plans beyond Snowcross? Or... Oh, gosh. I'm always plotting, like, new ideas. Yeah. Um, and I actually just have, like, a notes file on my phone and computer that whenever I have an idea, I write it down so I can come back to it later. Um, sometimes the hard part is like getting around to implementing it and like getting it on paper and getting the tech piece and you know, the different products. But yeah, I mean, continuing to write press releases for like race teams and, um, helping event organizers promote their events, helping racers with sponsorship and, 
helping like event organizers with different resources is something that I'm passionate about. So expand on that for a little bit. I'm a nerd and I'm into this, but I'm not sure everybody gets what that is. And I think that's important because I think think the industry is really missing that right now. Again, it's the generation gap. Yeah. I think like you said, there's so much that has been passed down from generation to generation and like just verbal, you know, teachings and stuff that you learn over the years. Nothing really has been documented or like shared. There's no master manual. Um, People create things and then it doesn't get passed on. So like really being able to take what I've learned, take what other people have learned in the industry and are willing to share and like putting that together into a, I always call it a resource, but something that like somebody can pick up and use and they didn't have to like hear it from somebody. Like if somebody's just coming into the industry and they decide like they want to host events, but they don't have these event organizers that are like willing to share information with them. Like where can they go to get that? And like, I really think like I'm always in the spirit of collaboration. I don't don't really feel like there's, there's never really a time where like it's so much competition that I'm not going to share that with somebody like collaboration will get you further than competition all the time. There's like plenty of motorcycle racers and riders and, people to go around so like help each other out and like help promote each other's stuff yeah it's i was curious if if you were going to try to offer that resource pro bono or if you wanted to do a subscription service for that so yeah i mean i think it'll be a mix to be honest like i think i'll filter stuff out in small chunks that will be like free but then like larger packages and checklists and things like that will be paid no, I, I like that for sure. Like, like, here's your template. If you think yeah, you can manage and I think it, do it. There's, like I said, there's so much information that you can find online anyways, but like when you take the time and you package it all up, that's like when you're willing to pay for it versus like, I'm going to spend 18 hours searching for all these little pieces and parts and I can just pay to have this one thing done. So. Yeah, I got, I got pampered. Um, I went to the they called it the dragon raid. It was hosted by the local triumph club in Dayton. Uh, I went to that for many years. Then I went to March Moto madness and that became the template for how I ran the scramble. And then I've obviously adapted things I've learned from racing and some other stuff, but it, it's not easy for the average person. Like lots of people want very different things, and especially once money becomes involved. It's, oh, so much more <laughs> yeah you haven't really gotten into that side of things so this is me just going to get pizza with 200 of my friends <laughs> you have yet to show up but we will fix that eventually i know well isn't it always <laughs> like i always go to um lay between the lakes national dual sport down in kentucky and tennessee but i don't think it was that weekend oh i was in new hampshire yeah that was the weekend at yeah. the motorcycle safety conference however this next year, 2023, the safety conference is going to be in Ohio. Okay. In Columbus. So maybe I like won't be out of state and can actually. It's won't um, be out of state so I can go out of state. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. I think some of the survey responses this year were make it a full week, Drew. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> hey, it's free. I mean, you guys are the ones yeah. paying for the, you're paying for the lodging. It's on you, right? Uh, but yeah, that's where I've arrived. Is I was like, yeah, it's, it's to the point where I could stay the whole week because even I don't, I, I ride every day. Like as soon as mm. I can't ride, I'm canceling it. But it's like, yeah, there's always more that I want to do, more pictures I want to take and some stuff like that. Um, wow, I totally got derailed in that thought pattern. Um, <laughs> I want to take a moment and talk with you about today's sponsor, Vicarious Magazine. Vicarious is an automobile and motorcycle publication that targets adventure seekers throughout North America and select global markets with experiential travel stories, reviews, and insightful interviews from industry experts. For folks that follow my blogging exploits, I've published a couple stories in Vicarious. I also want to point out that this isn't some motorcycle tabloid. This magazine is published on high-quality paper stock and loaded with full, high-resolution photos. Without experiencing the magazine for yourself, the best way I can describe it is if we smash National Geographic into like something like Car and Driver. It's gorgeous photos and stories about your favorite machines with picturesque views and places that you want to be. If you're not interested in hard copy, no problem. Vicarious is also available in digital format. Please go check out Vicarious in the link in the description. Now back to the show. You were talking about offering the community some of that. That's what I was going to say is what first, what sets you apart from other people that people could contact to get help with press releases, media, marketing, that kind of thing? What makes you special? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there are, there aren't a lot of people that specialize in motorsports for one. So like whether people are writers, communications, marketing people like to go to an agency or a firm, one that they're hella expensive usually um, in an agency environment. And like two, they probably don't know about motorsports stuff. So speaking the lingo or just understanding any of it is going to be really difficult. And so that's the nice thing is that, I've grown up in the motorsports industry and I like, I understand it. Not saying I know everything about it for sure. There's lots to learn. So many different disciplines of racing, but I've written about just about every national series this year. Um, so have a wide breadth of knowledge for those different disciplines. Um, yeah. I mean, I think just like I want to have a good relationship with the client too. Like I want to enjoy working with them. My kind of number one role in business was no assholes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we got to like get along and enjoy working together. Um, I'm going to work really hard for you. Um, but I also like want to be respected and, and collaborate. Like I, I sometimes think that people think I just, can magically do everything without any information. Like I still need the information. I still need details from you to kind of make it happen. That's, that's a good one. I kind of wish I would have asked that one sooner um, for that. (laughs) Cause yeah, the details, the details do matter and it is amazing Mm -hmm. how tough it is to talk that like, yeah. And like another hard thing is like everybody always wants to know their ROI or their return on investment. Right. And can you guarantee these things? Like, Nope, I actually can't nothing in the media world can really be guaranteed. I can promise to do the best job that I'm going to do for you. It's not going to be immediate results. You're not going to send out one race report and have a hundred sponsors knocking on your door. But if you're sending them out consistently throughout the season, that's when you're going to get noticed. So that's why like I, my packages are season long. I don't do one-off race reports. That's, I like that. Cause that's it. I do think consistency is key. YouTube podcasting. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to everybody for taking the summer off. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal. So, 
Um, I mean, you were talking about lots of ideas and stuff for the future. Where's the best place for everybody to find you and get samples of your work? Yeah, probably the best place is to visit my website, High Gear Success. So H-I-G-H-G-E-A-R success.com. And that has all my social channels on it. You can send me an email. That'd be a great place to connect as well. I feel like if you try to search the name Heather Wilson on social media, <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit challenging to find. Um, on Instagram, I'm at High Gear Heather. So you can find me there. Um, but yeah, pretty much any any medium, but if you go to my website, that'll link out to all the right places and you can see some of the race reports and the work that I've done there. Awesome. And you can see pictures of my dogs and all that fun stuff. <laughs> hey, they're awesome dogs. <laughs> Cause yeah. Um, anything else you want to leave listeners with before we get going? I think just like there's so many opportunities in the motorsports world to like have fun, to get involved, to make a difference. Like, it's up to you to kind of like get out of it, whatever you want to put in, but the opportunities are freaking endless. And, you know, Drew and I could talk about this stuff for hours, but yeah, just so many different things, you know, that are changing, that are evolving, that need to change, that maybe haven't changed. Just gosh, there are so many different things that you can dig into. Good. Well, and with that, yeah. we will catch the listeners down the road. Thank <laughs> you.